As we come to our scripture reading this morning, today we continue in the narrative lectionary, uh, particularly in the book of Genesis. Last week we were at the very beginning of the book, hearing the stories of creation with Adam and Eve and the garden. And uh, now we're going to move away from those stories of God's involvement in creation and the vast cosmos and move into stories about God's work with a particular uh, family, Abraham and his descendants. We've skipped a lot uh, in between. We've skipped uh, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel. But in that, in those stories, what we hear is God's uh, commitment to trying to renew uh, humanity, trying to help humanity become the very best that they can be. Well, now we're going to turn to the story of how God works through a particular family, Abraham and his descendants. And um, Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam all trace our roots to Abraham. Uh, Jews and Christians, we trace our roots through Abraham, Sarah, and their son Isaac. Uh, Muslims trace their roots through Abraham, Hagar, and their son Ishmael, who we're going to hear about today. Uh, we meet Abram in Genesis when he is a man who is uh, called by God to leave his homeland and to follow God. And in return, God promises that Abram will uh, have many children, uh, will have land to call his own, and that he and his family would be a blessing to the world. Uh, Abraham honors this. He leaves his homeland, follows God, but he still hasn't uh, received the promises. And so he's wondering when that is going to be. And we hear at the very beginning of our passage this morning that God speaks to Abram and reiterates the promise, uh, tells him that his descendants will outnumber the stars. And uh, we're also going to see how Abraham or Abram and Sarai uh, still worry that the promise isn't coming and uh, take matters into their own hands. So while we know that later they will have a son named Isaac, they don't know that. And instead, they offer up Sarai's slave girl, Hagar, as a surrogate. And so we're going to see some of the pain and the problems that this causes, but we're also going to see how God's mercy and love and care reaches Hagar and is instructive for all of us. So let us listen for the word of God. Our scripture today is from the book of Genesis. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, and chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Elzer of Damascus. You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house shall be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your own child shall be your heir. God brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteous. Now, sorry, 
Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sari said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go to my slave girl. So it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sari. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sari, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sari said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sari, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sari dealt harshly with her, and Hagar ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, slave girl of Sari, where have you come from and where are you going? He, she said, I am running away from my mistress, Sari. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall roam the wilderness with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy, which means God who sees. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing God? Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of God for the people of God. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, this is a sign that we have at the front of our church. Many of you have a sign like this in your yard. But as a sign and a phrase that has caused a lot of controversy, um, since it began a few years ago, and in particular in the last few weeks here in Lake Oswego. Uh, we've had our sign up just for about uh, a few months, and uh, we've had it taken twice. We've gotten uh, letters from neighbors that are unhappy with the sign. We've had uh, people commenting on our Facebook page. Sometimes comments have to do more with, you know, blue lives matter, police lives matter. But more often what we hear is the phrase, well, all lives matter. And shouldn't all lives matter? Why do you have to say that black lives matter? 
this has been particularly uh, relevant here in Lake Oswego uh, the last few weeks as our mayor gave an interview a couple weeks ago where he um, said erroneously that racial incidents are sort of one-offs here in Lake Oswego. And he once again reiterated the phrase, all lives matter. It is true that all lives matter. But what's true in our society is that all lives don't matter equally in our community and in our world. That we know that there are lives, particularly our black, brown uh, siblings, indigenous siblings, people of color, who are especially on the margins. And so when we say black lives matter, it's not that we're saying these other lives don't matter, but that all lives will not matter until black lives truly matter. Well, if we look at our story this morning, I think we could hear echoes of a similar theme. In the sense that if we were to go out into that desert in Canaan and find Hagar there alone in the wilderness, tacked up next to her might be a sign that would say Egyptian lives matter. Slaves' lives matter. Young girls' lives matter. Because I think the story that we get in our scripture this morning is a story that truly all lives do matter to God, and especially those lives of people who are most marginalized, who are most excluded, and who are most on the edge. History is so often told by the winners. It's so often told the by those who are victorious. And in a way in scripture, uh, we have that. We hear the story of the, the Jewish people, the story of, uh, of Abraham and Sarah and how they have Isaac and he becomes the father of Jacob who becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But what's so interesting is that this story about Hagar is preserved, that her name is preserved that her uh, child gets taken into the promise is preserved, and that we are called to see beyond the chosenness of one group, really to see the chosenness of all. Now, as we dig into the story, it helps to remember that it is uh, filled, it takes place, it's filled with patriarchal culture. Where men were in charge, women had very little rights, uh, polygamy was common, slavery was common, and where having children was essential for uh, legacy, for economics, for preserving one's tribe. And so in our story this morning, Abraham and, or Abram and Sarai, their names will be changed a few chapters later, um, they are given a promise that their descendants will outnumber the stars. Um, that God will be with them. And yet, because they're old, uh, because they're thinking very practically, um, they are worried that this promise won't uh, come to fruition. And so uh, Sarai, in particular, um, is concerned because it's considered to be her fault in that culture. She's barren. 
And so uh, she does what would have been common in, in that time, uh, which is to give a slave girl uh, to her husband uh, in hopes that he would continue his line. Now, it's common in the culture, but that doesn't make it right. Of course, this is uh, all about uh, uh, an enslaved person being abused and physically raped. And uh, what happens is when Hagar, uh, uh, Hagar conceives, and then when that happens, um, it says that uh, Hagar's status is kind of raised, that she is now carrying the heir. Uh, and it says she looks at Sarai with contempt, or at least that's how Sarai interprets it. And then um, Sarai doesn't want anything more to do with her, wants to get her uh, out of sight. And so she comes to her husband, Abram. Uh, she tells him to, to take care of it. And he says, no, it's your slave girl. You take care of it. And what it says is that Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. We don't know exactly what that means, but it is the same term that will be used in the book of Exodus to talk about how the Pharaoh deals harshly with the people of Israel when they are enslaved. And as a result of this treatment, which surely was abuse, um, Hagar, it says, runs away. And she runs away to the wilderness. She runs away uh, to a place that in the scriptural narrative is a place of, of danger and distress. And so uh, there she is. She's young. She's a foreigner. She's pregnant. She's alone, without any resources, off in the desert by her own, excluded at the hands of our ancestors of faith. Well, here it is that God comes to meet her. It says a divine messenger shows up, which basically is God at this point, comes and shows up and asks where she is fleeing from, where is she going, essentially meets Hagar in her need meets her in her vulnerability. And uh, even though uh, it initially says that Hagar, Hagar is to go back to Sarah and back to Abraham, um, later, there's another time she will be exiled again later and, and God will provide for her then. But God gives the promise uh, to Hagar also, that her descendants will outnumber the stars. So this promise that was initially given to Abram, intent for the, the chosen ones, so to speak, is now given to this lonely, Egyptian, young, abused slave girl. As if to say that God sees her and builds a future for her. What is amazing about this story is uh, not only that it's preserved, but that Hagar is 
uh, the very first woman in Abraham's line to uh, give birth. She's the very first woman to be given an annunciation uh, this, where the angel comes and says she's going to conceive and bear a child and his name will be Ishmael. This is very similar to what we're going to hear uh, centuries later in the chapter of Luke when the Mary, the mother of Jesus, gets a similar annunciation. Hagar uh, is the first woman to receive a divine messenger uh, of God. And most importantly, Hagar is the first and only person in scripture to name God. In that wilderness place, in that place that is supposed to be danger and distress, God comes to her. And Hagar has this divine encounter. And she names God El Roy. God who sees. God who sees me. God who sees my need. God who sees my plight. God who sees the injustice. And God who provides a way where there has been no way. What we see in this passage is a God who cares deeply for those most on the margins, those most excluded, those most pushed out by others. And in our society today, there, there are many people who can uh, be our modern-day Hagar's. Certainly our, our black and brown and indigenous siblings are those who have been excluded. Immigrants, uh, those who are uh, in deep economic poverty, our LGBT folks. There are many people who find in Hagar uh, a place of liberation, a place of hope, because it's a reminder that God is with them, God is with us. And so this is an important reminder for us. As we look at our world today, as we think about where we are today, because for some of us, we may find ourselves in that position of Hagar. We may feel excluded or have been excluded. But I'm also guessing there are many ways in which we are more like Abram and Sarai. We uh, have some privilege in our society. We have some power in our society. And the question becomes, how do we use it? Do we use it to exclude others? Do we use it to keep others on the margins? Do we use it in hopes of preserving our own sense of chosenness and particularity that we think is good or is needing to be preserved? I think about this, especially for us um, in, in this modern day progressive liberal church uh, here in America. I recently read, uh, I've been reading my way through this book, uh, Unsettling Truth, that's about um, the founding of our country, and we just read a chapter of it for our council retreat, and 
And within that is, um, is this sobering reminder that the settlers of our nation um, were uh, Puritans who were coming over. There are congregational forebears coming over on the Mayflower and, and other ships to America. And if you look at some of the ways that they preached and spoke, uh, they talked about this idea of being God's chosen, of being the chosen people who were going to come and, and who um, were going to, to multiply and, and live into the wilderness and, and tame the savages and show people the way. And, and there was a sense in which it was uh, like a divine right or divine calling. And that as they got there and settled and as they, as they ran into Native Americans, this idea of chosenness is what uh, allowed them to push the Native American people off the land. It's what allowed many of them to support um, chattel slavery and bringing people over uh, from Africa. That it was a way to um, uh, really allow this idea of, of white supremacy to take root in our society. And that we continue uh, to see that legacy in the, in the systems that are present in our world today. In the continued mass incarceration, particularly of uh, black and brown people, particularly men. In the economic disparities that continue uh, along racial lines. In the way that um, black women in particular are uh, more at risk for uh, death and childbirth, for example, and that the way, many ways, uh, black and brown indigenous people are more at risk for COVID because of healthcare inequalities. That these are part of the systems which, like Abraham and, and Sarah were part of their systems, we are part of ours. And so the question becomes, how, how do we live with, with this? And how do we live with this legacy? And how do we uh, begin to work to change the system, to understand that it isn't just about our lives mattering, but it truly is about all lives mattering, which means black lives have to matter and indigenous lives have to matter and immigrant lives have to matter and women's lives have to matter and LGBTQ lives have to matter. And so that question really becomes that even as a church, um, and, and especially those of us who are white in our church, how do, we, how, do we, how do we do our work to, to understand and to, uh, to, to reach out and to love and to become uh, more anti-racist and to become more inclusive and to become uh, people who really seek equality and justice. This is one of the reasons that at our church um, we have decided this year to focus on anti-racism. Uh, to really use it as uh, not only as content for what we want to learn about and grow in and understand how our faith relates to it, but also as a way, as a lens to understand how do we even move in the world? What are the biases we continue to carry? What are, what are even the ways that we um, make decisions at church? How is that reenacting white supremacy? How are we excluding uh, people in our uh, church community, in our wider community? 
Ibram Kendi, who has uh, written many good books, like uh, Stamped from the Beginning about a history of racist ideas and uh, how to be an anti-racist, uh, he basically says, you know, you, you either are a racist or you are an anti-racist. <laughs> you either are racist in that racism is a structural uh, issue, it is, a, it is uh, prejudice uh, combined with power, it's the idea that you know, white people are inherently better and it's the power to enforce that uh, subjugation and oppression on, on others. So you're either actively supporting that or you are actively working against that. You are actively anti-racist. You are actively uh, dismantling it. He says you can't just be not racist. You're either one or the other. And so the question really becomes how do we live into that anti-racist idea? How do we continue to be more active in, in what we are doing, which is everything from uh, working to right economic inequalities to uh, trying to change um, policing policies and, and the criminal justice system, and um, just working for uh, equal health access and uh, there's so many ways that, that we can do that. And so this is what we're going to be thinking about more and more uh, this year, and in particular this year in the life of our church. And even now, uh, there are some opportunities already to get involved. As I said, we, um, we are going to be having uh, a racism cohort uh, here at church through Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon. Uh, there's already uh, a group of us that are going to be part of that, but we welcome others. Um, who would like to learn about Oregon's uh, racist history and how we can understand the impact of white supremacy in our uh, state's history and in our own history. Uh, we are doing some work around uh, understanding voter suppression, uh, both in things that the Justice Action Team is doing uh, in terms of ways to get involved in registering uh, people to vote, but we're also hoping to um, give out some podcasts and some educational opportunities to learn uh, more about this in the coming weeks. Um, as I said, uh, we will have a meditation walk this week with Respond to Racism. We had our monthly meeting this last week and there'll be another one uh, next month and that's a great way also to plug in for more education and action. And even at next week's annual gathering, um, our keynoters are an indigenous uh, couple um, from the Newburgh area, and they um, are also going to help us understand the relationship between um, faith and this uh, notion that we need to be working for anti-racism and for Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Lives Matter. So as we continue to move through this year, may we remember that God loves all of us, that God sees all of us, that God longs for us to reach out and to care for each other, and that for God, every single life matters. And especially those like Hagar who are most on the margins and who are the ones whom God really sees and whom God knows. Amen.